The opening words this morning is from the 1997 Humanist Award recipient, Alice Walker. Love and justice and truth are the only monuments that generate ever-widening circles of energy and life. Love and justice and truth, the only monuments that endure through trashed and trampled generation after generation. We can say with conviction to our children that anything they love can be sheltered by their love. Anything they truly love can be saved, first in their own hearts, then in the hearts of others. They only have to make their love inseparable from their belief, and both inseparable from hard work. Thank you so much for that music of welcome. That was just beautiful. It is always good to have Tom with us, Tom Teasley, um, and we are delighted that he has brought along Charles Williams today. Thank you. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Amanda Poppy, the senior leader here. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am so glad that you are with us this morning, whether you are in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we know who you are and we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about why this community is important to us and we would love to hear from you what it is that you are looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and the waffle bar today. It's the first Sunday of the month, and so our teens are doing their usual waffle bar. There are gluten-free and dairy-free options because... It's 2017. No, it's 2018. So you need even more gluten-free options. 
And we hope that you'll consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program so that we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop that in the basket during the collection when it passes later in our platform service. We are particularly delighted to have with us this morning as a guest speaker, the Reverend Archine Turner. Archine is a colleague of mine and someone that I respect very deeply. She began her ministerial journey in 2000, taking classes um, here locally at Wesley, my alma mater, but, um, but toward a degree at Meadville Lombard, which is one of the two Unitarian Universalist seminaries. That one is located in Chicago. Um, she serves now as an affiliated community minister at Cedar Lane Unitarian Universalist Church right over in Bethesda, Maryland. Although to pay the bills, she is a full-time patent examiner at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office where she uses her chemical engineering degree, which is probably less helpful in ministry, I would guess, in general. Uh, Archine is also one of the folks who is um, creating our entire year of programming for the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association in this area, and I've been grateful for that leadership as well and her denominational uh, leadership on um, a number of issues. Um, so it is just a joy to have you here. Thank you so much. And Zeb, at Archine's invitation, will be joining her in sharing platform this morning. Many of you know Zeb, our clergy intern. And now I'd like to invite Carol Clayton to come forward and read our statement of purpose, which she's grabbing and has now in her hand, so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Carol is one of those volunteers who just jumps up and says yes anytime we have something that needs doing, especially if it involves a drill. It's on the, it's on, yep, did you find it? No, it's on the back. Just turn it right over. There you go. Anytime we have something that needs doing, including and especially if it has a drill um, or a camera. And Carol is actually leading the charge for our um, new, we're doing an, another new photo directory. So um, we hope that you'll, no, I think that's okay. Um, but see Carol with, with questions, check your email, and you'll get all that information. But now I'd like to invite Carol to share. Uh, the Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each, other's, each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you so much, Carol. Yes, as Carol lights our candle, the words are projected, and I invite you to join us. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world particularly those who are experiencing loss or fear because of violence or natural disaster. 
As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of deeper meditation. Settle yourself in your seat. Close your eyes if you would like. I'll share these words from Unitarian Universalist minister Robert Weston. And then after a time of silence, we will be invited into the meditative music from Tom and Charles. There is a living web that runs through us to all the universe linking us each with each and through all life on to the distant stars. Each knows a little corner of the world and lives as if, as if this were the all. We no more see the farther reaches of the threads than we see of the future, yet they're there. Touch but one thread no matter which. The thoughtful eye may trace to distant lands its form a continuing strand, yet lose its filaments as they reach out, but find at last it coming back to the place from which it led. We move as in a fog, aware of self, but only dimly conscious of the rest, as they are close to us in sight or feeling. New objects loom up for a time, fade in and out. Then sometimes as we look on unawares, the fog lifts. And then there's the web in shimmering beauty, reaching past all horizons. We catch our breath, stretch out our eager hands, and then in comes the fog again, and we go on, feeling a little foolish, doubting what we had seen. The hands were right. The web is real. Our folly is that we so soon forget. May the sun bring you new energy by day. May the moon softly restore you by night. May the rain wash away your worries. 
May the breeze blow you new strength into your being. May you walk gently through the world and know its beauty all the days of your life. Becoming an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural community is hard work. Here at West, I'm sure you know this. This is actually my second time giving a platform here. A little over 10 years ago, I spoke about welcoming of all things and the various identities that we all carry and some of you might remember that. I talked about the feeling when our identities are not welcomed in our home, in our society, and the need that everyone has to belong. So this message is not new to you then, it wasn't new to you then, and it's not new to you now. And um, it's not even new to Unitarian Universalists. Yet, why do we have such a hard time changing? I struggle with this why. Why is it? Alice Walker writes, it has become a common feeling, I believe, as we have watched our heroes falling, falling over the years, that our own small stones of activism, which might not seem to measure up, to the rugged boulders of heroism we have so admired is a paltry offering towards building an edifice of hope. Many who believe this choose to withhold their offering out of shame. And this is the tragedy of our world. For we can do nothing substantial towards changing the course of the planet, which is a destructive one, without arousing ourselves individual by individual, bringing our small, imperfect stones to the pile. Walker continues, I have learnt other things. One is the futility of expecting anyone, including myself, to be perfect. People who go through life seeking to change the world to diminish suffering and to demonstrate any kind of enlightenment are often as flawed as anyone else, sometimes more so. But it is the awareness of having faults, I think, and the knowledge that this links us to everything on the earth and opens us to courage and compassion. Sometimes our stones to us seem odd and mishappen. Their color a little off. 
Presenting them, we perceive our own imperfect nakedness, but also, paradoxically, the wholeness and the rightness of it. In the collective vulnerability of presence, we learn not to be afraid. I love that phrase. In the collective vulnerability of nakedness, we learn not to be afraid. It's interesting that we, it seems to me that individually we hear that nakedness, but we miss that collective vulnerability and not being afraid. That to me, I think, captured the reason why we fall short. We are not perfect, and there is beauty in imperfection. Yet we have a hard time making this a reality, especially as adults. But as children, we are encouraged to try and try again, and sometimes in our failure, we learn. When did that message change for adults? We are told we learn from making mistakes, yet we hold on to the ideal of perfection and choose not to act out of fear of making that mistake. And I've seen it time and time in communities that are trying to be anti-racist, anti-oppressive, and multicultural. As I polished my words last night, my best friend in ministry the Reverend Kate Lohr posted words that serendipitously reinforced this. She wrote, To my fellow white folks, when we focus on racism as an individual problem that bad people have, as opposed to a system of social control that implicates all of us, we limit our growth and understanding. We also set in place a hair trigger which by, by which we experience any challenge to our racial worldview as a challenge to our very identities as good and moral people. The truth is that good white people often do and say racist things, myself included. We can't let that fact shut out our willingness to do our work and stay in conversation. Isn't that wonderful? She just captured, I can actually go home at this point, <laughs> is how I feel, you know? Yes, good white people make mistakes, and that's not the problem. Do you good white people learn from those mistakes, is the question I put forth to you today. So what does this have to do with intention? Well, Wes intends to be inclusive and multicultural, do you not? Shifting a culture from white supremacy culture to a multicultural one does not imply that the old culture is lost completely. We are not shifting to disclude, exclude, one culture. 
we're shifting to open up, to bring and honor and celebrate other cultures. So what this means is that we have to, what they say is decenter whiteness or privileged voices and center voices of color because our default is to center whiteness. So we have to intentionally counter that. So what might this look like as a person of African descent, I have to be able to overcome my fear and name my needs, which are usually different than those of my white counterparts, and be brave to say, ouch, when I experience hurt. And that's a difficult thing sometimes. I also have to think about other people of color's culture. Because while all, we are all non-white and grouped together, what works for me may not work for my Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, or indigenous sibling. So we need to open up the center even more. It's not just for me. It's for all of us. At Cedar Lane Unitarian Church, where I am an affiliated community, community minister, I have, um, over the years, created space for people of color from various Unitarian Universalist congregations to come together. I do much of this work like I do the work I do for the LGBT community in a heterosexual world. It's no different. But there is something powerful about coming together as one's own kind to thrive instead of just survive. It helps us find the strength to say those things we need to say in our institutions to help move that community to be more inclusive. It helps us to know that other people of color or other queer folks are doing similar work, and we can be supportive of one another. Like Walker says, in that collective vulnerability of presence, we learn not to, to be afraid. Another way I have found this year of continuing the conversation is I'm searching for this fabulous book, Unitarian Universalists of Color, Stories of Struggle, Courage, Love, and Faith. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I kind of went through some of your platforms and realized Amanda mentioned centering, which is experiences of religious professionals, Unitarian Universalists of Color. But this one is the experiences of our lay people, which I feel, I find, actually, and I'm speaking this off the top of my heart, is actually um, more valuable as a resource because we need to understand how the majority of our people of color feel, and those are the ones in our pews versus the ones that lead us. And this book has been able to um, have a common story 
that we can talk about without the people of color within that community risking the fear of speaking their piece until the community as a whole understands some of the experiences that people of color might have in Unitarian congregations. And I might want to guess here in ethical cultures as well. And when uh, my white colleagues have told me they've read the book, they are actually surprised about these experiences. But when my colleagues of color read the book, they say, thank you, I am so glad somebody has had an experience like my own that can be shared. So I browsed through the intentional packet for Soul Matters this month, and I was struck by one of the resources, actually a TED Talk, of how to move from mass intention to mass action. Because we're good at all our intentions, but what good are they when we can't see them? in action. In the TED Talk, behavioral scientist Roger, actually Todd Rogers out of Harvard said the work on voter registration confirmed moving from mass intention to mass action is best accomplished when three conditions are present. First, there is a plan Second, when you can leverage positive peer pressure, or in other words, you are confident that lots of people will do it. And the third, when you reinforce the relative identity associated with that. So how does this apply to anti-racism work? I'm sure uh, there are plenty exa of examples out there, but I'll give you just one. Twenty years ago, a young white civic leader in Birmingham, Alabama, frustrated with the slow pace of civil rights and the continued suffering caused by racism, had an idea. What if everyone in the city personally pledged to eliminate racism and prejudice in their community? He, he drafted a simple statement of principles that committed people who signed it could do to work every day to eliminate racism. That idea and pledge became the Birmingham Pledge, and it was a plan. But the plans take courage to execute. And as Professor Rogers found, mass action comes when a lot of people believe in what they're doing. The Birmingham activist floated his idea to others and thus began a movement. Entire congregations in Birmingham signed it. Not only did it spread throughout Birmingham, but 20 years later, it has been taken up by congregations all over the country. And our Unitarian congregation in Richmond, Virginia, first Unitarian congregation in the formal 
capital of the Confederacy has taken it upon themselves to train themselves and spread that message and pledge throughout Richmond. First Unitarian of Richmond has reinforced its identity in the community as a people of faith who work for racial justice. So they had a plan, they had lots of people executed it, and it reinforced the identity that they wanted, the identity that as people of faith we're working for social justice, both inside our congregations and outside. So let us place those imperfect stones of activism on that pile to reduce and, dare I say, eliminate racism far and wide, and we start right here today. So may it be. Dreams. Hold fast to dreams. For if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams. For when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. I like to say that my very name embodies the complexity of being a white man in America engaging in anti-oppression work. My name is Zebulon Terrell Green. The first name comes from a great-grandfather on my father's side of the family. And this is when naming truths can be a little difficult. This first Zebulon Green was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And it's undeniable that in my ancestry, that it's deeply entrenched in our country's history of racism and white supremacy, and that this has shaped my life in ways that I don't always want to admit or live into what that means and the privileges I have incurred from it. And on the other side, my middle name comes from a great-grandfather on my mom's family the Reverend John Terrell Wayland, and he was a civil rights minister active in black rights and workers' rights, and he built partnerships and shared pulpits with ministers of color in the Jim Crow era South. So of course, as you can imagine, I like to brag about the Reverend John Terrell Wayland and do everything I can to ignore the other one. But, I can't do that. I can't claim one side of my family and ignore the other and how these dual legacies interact. And in some ways, it makes it easier for me to engage in justice work, to know that I have this example of working towards civil rights on one side and knowing how deeply tied I am to white supremacy on the other. It makes it when I hear, well, you benefit from white supremacist culture. I can't argue with that. I can't deny it. But 
where it makes it easier for me to get motivated, it also makes it harder for me to actually engage in complexity. It makes it easier for me to ignore that white supremacy is not just the actions of a few radical outliers, but it is an entrenched system. And not every white person in America gets to so easily trace their roots to racism and how it's benefited them. Some folks didn't immigrate till after abolition. Others have always supported civil and human rights. But regardless of family history, regardless of personal action, we benefit from systems of oppression in material ways. So we think of it as a systemic cause. Our unexamined biases, our unbalanced cultural values, generations of policies and politics that have promoted a few and punished the rest. Focusing on the outliers only allows us to ignore culpability. And I'm sure I'm not the only person that likes to try to downplay how these systems exist in our lives. It's very uncomfortable. But if we don't acknowledge our privileges and their harmful leg legacies, well, that becomes an endorsement of these systems. It's such a simple impulse. If I never talk about it, maybe no one will ever know. Maybe I'll even forget it myself. I never even met this other Zebulon Green. He has nothing to do with me. In fact, heck, his children disowned my parents, so like, I'm not even part of that family, really. But that's taking a very easy way out and changes nothing. Moves us no closer to justice or equality. The silence only preserves. We must and I must sit in the discomfort and the complexity of having materially benefited from oppression and having the knowledge that being privileged doesn't make me a bad person or not worthwhile. Because making the acknowledgement that not everyone has the same advantages, that some people have been silenced and are continued to be oppressed, making that acknowledgement as hard as it is, is the only way that lets us engage, lets us act, lets us set intention to change. And as we set that intention, we can really begin to do the work of anti-oppression and anti-racism. So where do we start? Where can we begin to actively decenter our privileged voices to decenter whiteness? And often we hear the term decentering and it sounds scary. What do you mean I have to step back? What do you mean am I not welcome? But it's not a statement saying we're not welcome and it does not have to be a painful process. Decentering is not about excluding anyone, but it is just acknowledging that we need humility, especially white people, especially privileged people, regardless of which privilege, that we are not the experts of other people's lives. We need to be aware of how much space and time we take up so we can share it with everyone. My big lesson in decentering my voice when it became so obvious was when I first started getting involved in public demonstrations and marches and rallies and protests, it became just inescapable that our culture centered my voice more than others. The first time I joined a protest as a clergy person, 
it was a Black Lives Matter rally. And Star King, my seminary, had blessed a few stoles for us students to wear around our shoulders, something to signify that we were faith leaders and bringing that presence to the march. And when we were given these stoles, we were warned that the press would follow us, that people would seek our opinion more than others. And in fact, those of us with the privileged identities, especially those of us who are white, were essentially given a script to follow. I'm here to show my support for the cause. You should speak further to, and then identify the leaders of the march, are those with marginalized voices, those most affected. And I was a bit skeptical at the time about all this prep, about how to say and how to interact with people. Because I was thinking, I'm just one person. No one's really going to want to focus on me. But arriving at the rally, standing there, all of a sudden it was just like, boom, cameras were in my face. And I wasn't the only white person there, and cameras were in everyone's faces. Because the press wanted our story. Why were we there? Luckily, I had a script to fall back on. <laughs> I'm here to show my support. I'm here to say Black Lives Matter. You should really speak to the organizers right over there. So the cameras would go away, and I was thinking, okay, that was weird, but I handled it. But a few minutes later, boom, <laughs> in my face again. And each time this happened, it was the same script. Here to say Black Lives Matter, talk to, and then I would begin to identify other people in the crowd that I had spoken to, people of color who had shared their stories of direct experience with police discrimination, stories that it wasn't my place to tell, not when they were there and could say it themselves. So I would tell the cameras, talk to this person, talk to them. Because these stories, these experiences, these people's lives were why I was there at the march and my white voice was not needed to make their lives legitimate. So that's what it means to decenter yourself, to set with that intention, knowing to step back and to let others speak, knowing that you do not always have to be a leader. And when the news aired that night, they showed some clips from the rally, some clips from the march, and brief segments with people of color and the, or the people of color organizers. But the lion's share of testimonial came from one black, up, oh, sorry, one white woman. And she was not a, a leader of the movement. She was not a spokesperson. She was a supporter, but she had a statement that she read. And the editing, though, framed her as the person, framed it as her mission. And it's not her fault, because she gave just a two minutes you know, this is why I'm here, talk. But the editing put it forward. The editing centered her voice more than others. And I know if I had spoken more, if I had not been prepared, it would have just as easily been me on the news framing this Black Lives Matter event. Because I would have thought nothing at all about talking to the press if I hadn't had the advice of others leading me. It would have been so easy to speak with very good intentions about all the reasons black lives mattered to me. I was armed with statistics about police discrimination. I could talk about the lives and deaths of Eric Garner or Michael Brown. And wearing a stole 
identifying as clergy, I could have talked in depth about my Unitarian Universalist faith and how it led me to take action. But what would have been the impact? How much space would I have taken up and whose voice would have been cut? Who would have been seen as the leader of this movement? So that's why, in addition to our discussions about decentering, we also need to have conversations about intent versus impact. Because we need to be aware that despite our intentions, our actions can be hurtful, our actions can take up space, our actions just do not always align with our goals when we set out. Because I could have had the very clear intention of, this is why I care, but the impact would have been, this is why I'm leading. And it wasn't a place for me to lead. And it's important to know that it is good to have our good intentions, good to set them, but we need to be prepared, as Archine mentioned earlier, with, when we hear the ouch, when we hear the hurt, and know that our intentions did not live up to our goals. And when that happens, it's our duty as privileged voices, my duty as a privileged voice, to apologize and to learn from it. Because in this work, we'll all make mistakes, and that's good. That's what we're supposed to do, because we're supposed to learn to change, and you can't change without a few blunders along the way. But if we stay engaged, stay willing to listen, to study, to change both ourselves and our culture, if we set those intentions, I see a place for hope for all of us. Thank you. Bring me all your dreams, you dreamers. Bring me all your heart melodies, that I may wrap them in a blue cloud cloth, far from the two rough fingers of the world. Bring me all your dreams, you dreamers. So one of the beauties of living in the DMV is the opportunity to go to various conferences and events. Back in 2003, I eagerly attended the American Humanist Association's annual conference, hoping to find humanists of color like me. Where else would I find them? I thought. Imagine my disappointment when I was one of the very few people there and there were less than 10 of us there. I saw then that the humanist groups were not unlike my Unitarian Universalist groups and that their culture was designed by and for white, heterosexual, college-educated men. Understandably, I found, I found out later that American, African-American humanists actually went off and formed their own, own organization, and I was able to meet them and go to their conferences, and uh, their current leaders are actually uh, gay 
and actually female. Being black and lesbian and a minister and humanist, look at all those identities. A friend of mine, Barbara Smith, writes, perhaps the most maddening question anyone can ask me is, which do you put first, being black or being a woman, being black or being gay? The underlying assumption is that I should prioritize one of my identities because one of them is actually more important than the rest or that I must arbitrarily choose one of them over the others for the sake of acceptance into one particular community. I refuse to live my life this way, Barbara says. All aspects of who I am are crucial, indivisible, and pose no inherent conflict. There only seems to be, they only seem to be in opposition in this particular time and place living under the United States capitalism, a system whose functioning has always required that large groups of people be economically, racially, and sexually oppressed, and these potentially dissident groups be kept divided from each other at all costs. That's the reason I am forced to choose. With overt racism and sexism and homophobia and other isms on the rise, we can no longer say, stay divided. These potential dissonant groups are coming together to fight for justice and oppression of all kinds in this country. i give you an example. A year ago, I had been extremely depressed after the following November presidential election. I had thrown in the towel. Why was I working so hard when others were not? Why am I putting out that energy when people are not joining me? Then, the Sunday after the Women's March, I heard the president of NOW, the National Organization of Women, Terry O'Neill, preach in Cedar Lane's pulpit. She's a member of Cedar Lane, and she's a white leader of a national organization. And her message made me recommit to anti-racism and anti-oppression. Terry, a white woman, named and acknowledged that white women were partly to blame for the results of the election and that as an organization now needed to do things differently. From that point on, the National Organization of Women began to put the most vulnerable women in the center of their work because if just injustices can be corrected for the most vulnerable of us, the rest of us will also experience justice. Terry O'Neill named intersectionality, and it showed me that an organization can get it. In my mind's eye, I pictured an undocumented, undocumented homeless 
trans person of color with children, differently abled, with no college degree, and English as a second language. In that sentence, I try to get them all in. <laughs> all in. Into that visual picture. I cried that day and silently picked up my towel and now I am back in the work. Sometimes I've said to people, I am a coalition of one because I have those various identities that are not the norm but are perfectly natural to me, is what I say. Most of the time I can be in a space that embraces one of my identities but not many of the others. I have been in people of color groups that are not open to my humanist, humanism or I've been in humanist spaces that aren't open to my brownness. So whenever I'm in these groups, I actually do what Jeb does. I step back to make more space for more than one identity. So we all have to do that learning of stepping back because rarely do we carry all those identities that are oppressed. So we all need to think about what that means and do like National Organization did, reimagine how things can be. So I open up the space and if that doesn't work, I do what the African-American humorist did. I form another group. I do. I do. And I don't have to do these things. But why do I do my, why do I force myself to do these things? Because I know the pain of being ignored and excluded by one of my identities. And I know the joy when that identity is heard and understood. That pain, that feeling is similar. The experience may not be for the different identities, but the feeling of being excluded or the joy of being included certainly are similar. My friend Keith Boykin, another gay activist, puts it this way. Traveling a direct path from Cairo, Egypt, at, northern, at the northern end of Africa, a thousand miles south, to Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, it is possible to cross the Nile River four times, four times. The river snakes along various paths into Ethiopia and Uganda, stretching out for another 3,000 miles from Khartoum. To some, these may seem to be many different rivers. Instead, they are all part of the same waterway, the world's longest river, the Nile. Traveling through human history, from the earliest tribal and ethnic warfare to present, it is possible to cross a, a river many times. From the ethnocentrism of nationalism, to the anti-Semitism of the acquisition, to the racism of slavery, the river breaks off into tributaries 
of sexism, xenophobia, and homophobia. Some imagine these currents to be separate bodies of water, but they are all the same. They are all part of a river called privilege and ism or racism or the power of putting, power of putting privilege into action, the ism that is created. Like the Nile, it is deceptive, taking on many different shapes and naturally appears different in different places along its vast expanse. At some points, it is wide and deep and forbidding, while other points, it is not as intimidated. But for all of us, black and white, straight and gay, I would say ably bodied and non-bodied, I'd say documented, undocumented, you get the picture, right? We must all cross that river to survive. All of us are in this boat, this beautiful blue boat, together. If the current trends continue, homophobia will not be the last acceptable prejudice, but rather the most currently acceptable one. But even in this dubious distinction, it is being challenged by the resurgence of open racism and xenophobia. The words of the Negro spiritual, one more river, does not necessarily say that river to be crossed will be the last to cross, for us to cross. Instead, it suggests that that river be merely the next in the series of rivers to cross. Whether homophobia becomes that last river, or xenophobia, or sexism, it doesn't matter. It depends on how all of us cross all of those rivers. Building that more just world depends on all of us. And I actually believe we're up to the challenge. If we stick together and work on all these things, I have that dream. I actually got to sign the Humanist Manifesto Three at that retreat in 2003. And I felt very privileged to do so. But a, re a phrase that resonated with me then, that resonates with me now, is this. The joining of individual individuality with interdependence enriches our lives, encourages us to enrich the lives of others, and inspires hope of attaining peace, justice, and opportunity for all. So may it be. I dream that world. Ashe. I dream a world. This is how Langston Hughes dreamt his world many years ago. I dream a world where man, no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. 
I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way. Where greed no longer saps the soul or avarice blights our day. I dream a world where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth and every man is free. Where wretchedness will hang its head and joy, like a pearl, attends the needs of all mankind. Of such, I dream my world. Artina and Zeb, thank you so much for your words this morning, and Tom and Charles for your music. Our children will be joining us. I heard their voices outside. As they come in and join us, I invite you to turn to each other and say hello this morning.